Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. I'm very fortunate this week to bring back my friend, Dr. Stacy Sims. I recently put out a post on social media asking for some feedback from you guys on who you'd love to hear from again for round two. And Dr. Stacy Sims was at the top of the list. For those of you that weren't around for the first time I had her on, Dr. Sims is a researcher, TED speaker, author, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically the sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. She's also a leading global expert on female physiology and training. In this conversation, we covered everything that you need to know about training and fueling during all stages of menopause. Dr. Sims does a fantastic job answering questions, breaking things down into applicable ways for women to kick ass through menopause and beyond. There's a ton of great information in this conversation, and it's really not just for women. It can be for men, for coaches, for anybody that lives with a female. There's just a lot that you can learn and to help um, grow your expertise as a coach. Some of the first topics were to setting the table. What is menopause? What do we have to know? What are some of the terms that we're going to use today? How can we kind of set the table? Also, what's the background, the science, and the phases of menopause? After that, we talked about what are the most common symptoms and theories behind what causes the symptoms. Then we talked about what does it mean when women become deficient in certain hormones? After that, we talked about the history of hormone replacement therapy who is it for? Who might not it be for? Who might not benefit from it? After that, we talked about some specific case studies of athletes that Dr. Sims has worked with and how she's created a positive change in their life during menopause. And then the last half of the show was a listener Q&A. On my social media, I put out uh, a question. If anybody wants to, me to ask a question to Dr. Sims, go ahead and submit those on Instagram. And I had a bunch of submissions. So thank you guys for putting those in. We got them all answered. They're all fantastic questions. And I think they'll uh, just be really great insight for you guys out there listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a rating and review as that helps my show grow tremendously. I thank you all so much for the constant support. I'm excited to get into another year of podcasting looking into 2022. So without further ado, let's get to this great episode with Dr. Stacy Sims. Let's go. Dr. Stacy Sims, welcome back to the MyFit Podcast for round two. It's just a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to continue our conversation. Absolutely. Our first conversation was so um, delightful. I just really appreciated some of the information that you were able to share with me and the listeners. A lot of things that I've never really learned before. And as you've talked about before, it's topics that need to be echoed more and more. And last time we talked a lot about 
menstrual cycle, working around your period, um, how to, you know, uh, supplements that you can take, things like that. And we got done. It was a great conversation. I felt like we just scratched the surface. I felt like there's so much more that we can go into. And we were kind of leaving out a category of women, if you will. So today we're going to go even further down the life cycle and go into menopause and talk about that 40 to 60 year old range and kind of what are some expectations and things that we can do um, to help combat that time of our lives. And so I'm really excited to get into that. I have a a bunch of questions from listeners that submitted questions about menopause. And uh, I'm just excited to kind of get into the nitty gritty science, nutrition, and anything else that comes our way. Perfect. Let's go. All right, let's get started. So you have a course, Menopause for Athletes. Um, so I think would be a good place to do is I first want to start um, in order to have this conversation. I think we need to set the table for people who maybe don't know a lot about it or they're younger, they're not experienced with it. So I think first, Stacey, talk to me about what is menopause? What's the background, the science, and what are the phases we need to know before we take a, a, a deeper dive? Yeah. So the one thing to know is we often say menopause should be a birthday because it's actually one day on the calendar that marks 12 months of no period. But a lot of people wrap up that whole transition between reproductive years and now being in the non-reproductive years as being menopause. But we have this time period beforehand called perimenopause. And a lot of women aren't quite aware that they're in it or where it's starting. Um, But it can start anywhere from the late 30s to early 40s. And you are just wondering, like, why am I not responding as well to training? Why are my nutrition changes not working that well? Because what I was doing two years ago, sometimes even one year ago, isn't working now. And the ratio of estrogen progesterone starts to change. So we'll see more anovulatory cycles. So you'll have more estrogen dominance. You might not have as much progesterone produced after ovulation. So there's this change in these ratios. And what happens with that is every system of the body is affected by estrogen progesterone. And the most inherent changes that we see is within body composition. So lean mass to fat mass, bone mineral density, as well as mood and mood disorders. After we start looking at what's happening there, it becomes really apparent in those few years right before that one point in time called menopause. And this is where a lot of women are like, I am having vasomotor symptoms, so hot flashes, night sweats. I'm having a lot of brain fog where I can't um, think clearly. I've lost my motivation. I've lost my drive. I don't really feel purposeful in life. And there's all these confounding variables that a lot of women will attribute to life stress, um, often having the bookend of older parents and younger kids and being at the peak of their career, but they're not really understanding that it's these hormone changes that are happening that's contributing to this stress and perception. And this is the time where we want to create a whole bunch of change in our training and nutrition, because after that one point in time menopause and we hit postmenopause, the new biological state, all the body composition changes have already happened. It's not too late after menopause to implement change, but if we can precede that menopausal point with changes in our nutrition and training, then we're getting into that new biological state in a much better position, so to speak. So when we talk about differences in training and nutrition, we want to be able to create a stress and back up that stress with sound nutrition to do what these hormones used to do for us. So we know that estrogen is anabolic. It signals um, 
satellite cell uh, generation for lean mass. It's also responsible for the myosin fiber and the fast twitch aspect. Um, progesterone is critical for blood glucose control. Um, and estrogen, when it is in isolation, not only is it anabolic, but it also inhibits the body's ability to access carbohydrates. So you rely more on free fatty acids. So if we're looking at when those hormones begin to flatline or those ratios begin to change, there's a misstep in the signaling to what's happening to our receptors. So in the brain, there's a misstep and we end up having hypersensitivity to serotonin and less dopamine. So this is where we start getting depression and anxiety, mood swings. And because these hormones perturbate every day and these ratios can change every day, we get these changes in our mood almost every day. So we have to say, okay, well, how can we back that up? What are we going to do from a nutrition standpoint to really help with that mood? And it's protein. So if we're looking at regular doses of protein at even intervals throughout the day, we have a higher amount of circulating leucine. And leucine and tryptophan use the same um, transport into the brain, but it's leucine is the preferred amino acid for this transport. So if you have a lot of circulating leucine, then it mitigates some of the extra tryptophan getting into the brain, which then reduces the serotonin responses and it enhances dopamine. So we start to have more of an even keel of our mood and our brain fog. If we start looking at the fact that estrogen is anabolic, but then when we have the counter of elevated progesterone or changes in ratios, we have a blunting in our anabolic signaling. So we have to look at having regular protein, but we also have to change up our training because we have that anabolic signaling that's muted. So we need to look at a higher training stress, higher training load. And it's not like the typical hypertrophy stuff that eight to 10 because that's not what we're looking for. It's not a strong enough stress. We need to get into lifting heavy. So one, we're getting a neuromuscular change. We're getting activation into the myosin filament to actually maintain integrity there. And we're also getting more of a signaling for lean mass development. Then we will look at progesterone because progesterone is um, responsible for blood sugar control. And we start to lose progesterone, we get more of a signaling for visceral fat and insulin insensitivity. So we need to look at doing um, high intensity plyometric type work because this actually causes a, a change within the muscle cell to rely more on the GLUT4 mechanism rather than estrogen progesterone receptors for pulling sugar in. So this is Kind of like what I mean when we're looking at these changes that are happening, these body composition changes that are happening, because the hormones are so tightly tied to everything that's happening, we need to find external ways of replacing what these hormones used to do for us. And when I say that, people are like, well, why not menopause hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy? Because the composition of those don't do the same as our natural hormones. We know that someone who goes on uh, menopause hormone therapy, it slows the rate of change, but it does not instigate lean mass development, doesn't instigate blood sugar control. The idea behind menopause hormone therapy is to help women get through the severity of the symptoms of hot flashes, mood swings, um, brain fog, irritability, poor sleep. So all those symptoms that affect daily life but it's not about body composition mm. and there are a lot of women who are like i'm going to go on hormone therapy to help with body composition but that's not the reason to do it mm. yeah interesting so 
we're not going to talk a lot about guys in this episode, but I'm curious just to, because I know you've done research on the difference between men and women. So I'm thinking about the guy that's listening to this. What are the biggest differences for men and women during this portion of their life at 40 to 60? Is there some things that you could take away or that you'd want to echo to the men out there? Yeah. So we have this comparison of aging and men age in a linear fashion, but women don't. So this is that transition is why it's really important for women to understand it. But as men age, they also become more anabolic resistant. And so they also have to look at how am I going to change my training to get the signaling for lean mass development and to maintain optimal body composition. And again, it's looking at the protein and it's looking at the kind of resistance training that you're doing. So as you get into the mid to late 40s for men, you want to start changing up what kind of resistance training you're doing and really making sure you're nailing that protein. And when you get into the 50s and 60s for men, the resistance training becomes really, really critical. Mm. And the post training protein isn't that 20 grams, you're getting more to that 30, 35 gram, because you have this anabolic resistance. But that's the nature of aging for men. And it's not hormone related. It's just the nature of aging. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, when you talk more about the, the hormone side of things, um, you know, we, we hear about the hormones being deficient. So what, what does that, what does that mean when that happens and they stop producing? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I really, this comes from working at Stanford with my mentor, Marcia Stefanik, who was the PI for the women's health initiative. That was really paramount for kind of the scare factor of, of menopause hormone therapy. It's not a deficiency. Okay. It's not a hormone deficiency. And a lot of people will talk about it as if, oh, your hormones have stopped. You've had ovarian failure and it's deficient. It's a life process. So just the same as you become more anabolic resistance and you have to do something, you start to taper off the amount of hormones that you're producing. The same with collagen, same with testosterone in men. It's just one of the aging aspects. And it happens to be something that's been direly underlooked in women and been under the carpet for so long, but it happens in all cultures to all women. But Western society has been the one that's been like, you're deficient, you need to replace hormones. Right. But if you look outside of Western medicine and Western philosophy, it isn't the same. So we look at a lot of other aging cultures and like, well, it's part of aging and I'm embracing the change because now I don't have to worry about getting a period. Now I'm free. Now I can do stuff that I want to do. And I'm old enough that now I get more respect. So it's a mind switch. But if we talk about it from the Western medicine philosophy of ovarian failure, it's you have less and less ovulatory cycles. And your body is trying to produce more eggs to mature or to get them to mature. So you'll see more follicle stimulating hormone, FSH, which becomes a marker where people are tracking it to see, are you actually in peri or postmenopause? What is your luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone doing? Because when those two elevate, it's because it's, it's harder and harder to get a follicle to mature and drop an egg. And it's just... A biological process of aging, because if women were 60, 70, 80 years old and having babies, most of the time, those babies would be without parents relatively soon. And we know that kids, they need some kind of supervision, regardless of what it is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just more of a survival of the species, if you look at about it from a biological standpoint. Interesting. 
I'm, I'm interested to hear too a little bit more about the hormonal replacement therapy um, because so I recently heard about I don't even know like how true this is but this hormonal pellets have you heard about this idea mm-hmm. can you talk to us a bit about like maybe the history of hormonal replacement therapy and kind of how we got to where we are today and then yeah just touch a little bit more on that because I think that's a topic too that there's just a lot of confusion and the listeners and people out there the general fitness enthusiasts are just like what's the real scoop here so can we can we dive a little bit deeper into that yeah for sure um, so the history of menopause has been interesting because it used to be that women were called to be insane. They have hysteric fits and that's what they were saying vasomotor symptoms and perimenopausal menopausal symptoms were. So they would be thrown into insane asylums. They'd be locked away. I mean, the whole uh, witch, witch hunt and burning in Salem, Massachusetts, most of them were older women who probably were demonstrating a lot of the, the menopausal symptoms. So when they're trying to find a fix for it, um, in the early 20s, they were finding estrogen in in mice model. And they're like, hey, this is a female hormone. I wonder what will happen if we give it to these women who are going crazy that we've locked up in insane asylums. So they started dosing menopausal, perimenopausal women with estrogen. And of course, they started having better symptomology and all of a sudden they weren't insane. And so that became like the beginning of hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy. Um, And they started really looking at, uh, well, how do we counter it? What do we do? And the identification of progesterone wasn't until the mid 40s. So it's been relatively soon. Mm -hmm. And how do we create it? How does it work with estrogen? And the early hormone therapies were really high doses and they cause a lot of issues. Um, and so initially there is a, a big fear about that because you start to see side effects. Then we have two major studies, the million women's study in the UK and the women's health initiative. There are two different outcomes for the most part from these two different studies. So the women's or a million women's study in the UK studied women who were newly menopausal. So really close to the onset of menopause so you know in their 50s or so but the women's health initiative was really looking at women who were five six seven years down the track and then both of them started hormone therapy different formulations trying to see is it beneficial or not for all these public burden diseases that we're seeing the diabetes cardiovascular risk factors dementia that kind of stuff in the million women's study they didn't find side effects they're like, there's no increased risk of breast cancer. There's no increased risk of AFib, cardiovascular disease. But in the Women's Health Initiative, they did. And so the publication of the results from the Women's Health Initiative had this huge scare across the world of, oh, we shouldn't be using these hormones because we have an increased risk of dementia, increased risk of, of heart failure, of a heart attack, of blood clotting. Um, and so there was this big, huge fear about it. But the distinct difference was the age at which these women were put on hormone therapy. The closer you are to that one point in time menopause, or if you're starting it before you actually have complete cessation of, of hormone production, the risk factors are relatively low, very small risk factor. If you start it six, seven, eight years, 10 years out after you hit menopause, this is where we start seeing the side effects because your body's been without it, doesn't know how to assimilate it. And now all of a sudden you're getting this huge upturn of estrogen progesterone. 
which causes some epigenetic changes that are not so favorable. But the general consensus about menopause hormone therapy, again, is using it for using the least effective dose for the minimal amount of time. So it's not saying, no, you can't use it. Every woman's a little bit different and every woman's need is different. So you really have to talk to an endocrinologist or a specialist to figure out what kind of formulation you need. What are your symptoms? Do you need it? Can you use alternatives before you start using it? Um, but a lot of women aren't educated that way. So they think that, oh, I'm going through menopause. I need to get on replacement therapy. There's no other alternative if I want to have quality of life. Mm -hmm. But we know things like changing training, doing different nutrition strategies, using things like adaptogens, using collagen, using creatine. All these things benefit in that perimenopausal phase, but then also help the body when they are in the postmenopausal phase. Because if you do go on hormones, you can't stay on them for the rest of your life. You're going to have to taper off them at some point. So it's kind of a, I wouldn't say a quick fix, but it does really significantly help women who are severely impaired from daily quality of life from these hormone switches. So women who are listening to this and they're weighing up the options of going on it, you there are different symptomology checklists that you can go through. And if you end up having severe symptomology, then yeah, there's a time and a place for it. Definitely investigate it. But if you're looking at it because your body composition has changed, and you might have problems sleeping, you might have the occasional night sweat, occasional being every other night or something. So your sleep's a little bit disrupted. There are other things you can do first before you re resort to using hormone therapy. Very cool. Um, I watched a video on your website talking about the menopause for athletes um, course that you put out. And of course I want to, and if anybody's interested in that, go check that out. And in the video, Dr. Stacey, you said that you have some case studies for and from endurance athletes, MMA, GPP, and just weightlifters. Could you talk about one of those case studies? Yeah. So although it's called menopause for athletes, it's really explaining any active woman and how to change. Like if you're training for a purpose, that's what we say, you're an athlete. So when we look at the case studies, um, these end up being women who are having and experiencing things I've already talked about, like they're in their mid forties and I'll take my MMA fighter, for example, she was trying to make weight for fighting and she couldn't drop weight anymore. So she started getting into the downward spiral of doing a lot of fasted training, doing a lot more cardio stuff than she should. And she's still putting on weight and she was having um, slower reaction times. Um, she was having a lot of problems sleeping, a lot of brain fog and her performance was definitely taking a dive. Like she, she just couldn't fight. And she's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And looking at it, there were two things that popped out. One, she was in a low energy state, which often happens because one of the first things that happens in this age group when you start putting on weight and training is like, oh, I'm not training enough and I'm eating too much. So doing, like I said, a lot of facet training and stuff. So we fix that. We're like, look, we got to look at fueling for everything that you're doing and making sure we're getting a good 40 gram hit of protein after each training session. And the type of training as well, we cut out all the volume. We're like, no long, slow stuff. We're not doing the cardio stuff because that's the worst zone for any woman to be in, in this, this transitional period of time, because it actually just encourages your body to increase cortisol and put on body fat. Mm. 
we need to do high intensity work. So we got her back into sparring. We got her back into doing plyo work. We got her back into doing a lot of heavy lifting as well um, for the strength component because it's really, really difficult for anyone to get bulky, especially in this transition phase of life. And we are really, really careful to polarize her training. So if it was going to be high, high intensity, short, super high intensity, and then the recovery between sets was really, 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 really low, making sure her heart rate dropped to about 50%. So when she had to do the high intensity, she could do it full gas. Like there wasn't hitting that 80% mark, always at that 90 to 95%. And once she couldn't hit that anymore, we called it because you're really trying to teach that polarization. And we changed up her nutrition as well, you know, matching for what she was doing, increased her protein because she was sitting around 1.5 grams per kilogram, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we boost, we boost her up to 2 to 2.3. Because if you have a high protein intake, it's really easy to lose body fat and maintain lean mass. So we're able to get her back into her fighting weight without calorie restriction. And because we started really focusing on the high intensity and the reaction stuff, she got her her fighting mojo back. Hmm. And it was over, you know, the course of six-ish months that we had started doing this. Now we're about two and a half years in, and she's still at the top of her game. Hmm. Wow. Very cool. I've noticed a couple yeah. times, I've noticed a couple times you say the word protein, and I gotta imagine that this is a pretty big part of aging. Talk to me about why protein is so important for you and in and, and your, your speech to your athletes. Oh, because we break it down. We break down lean mass all the time. And it's hard enough when you're in your reproductive years to actually stay on top of protein because progesterone is catabolic. But when you get into this transition state, your body is in a significant amount of stress all the time. So you have a higher baseline level of cortisol, you have higher total body inflammation. And if you're not staying on top of protein and protein coming in, then you're not ever going to make gains because the cortisol is just going to be there and it's going to be like, sweet, okay, well, I need fuel, let's break down some lean mass. And when you think about the anabolic um, insensitivity that occurs with estrogen changing, progesterone changing, if you look at the pathway of muscle protein synthesis, and I always look off to the side because that's how my mind works, like I see the diagrams. So if we look specifically at muscle protein synthesis, when we are in our reproductive years, there's three pathways, well, four. So we have IGF-1 that's stimulated by estrogen. You have specific estrogen receptors. You have the mechanical aspect of physical activity, and you have amino acids. When you have flatline of hormones or misstep in the hormones, you end up with two pathways. You have mechanical aspects of physical activity and amino acid, amino acid availability. So as we go through this transition phase, we need more protein because if we're doing the mechanical aspect of physical activity, we need those amino acids there to back it up to get that anabolic stimulus that we want because we've lost the other two pathways for anabolic stimulus. So we hear about if you're doing resistance training, it's not that important to follow up with protein. If you are a young man, sure. If you are a resistance trained premenopausal woman and you've had food, yeah, you can delay the protein a little bit. But when you get into perimenopause and especially postmenopause, no, you can't ignore that protein because your body has these physiological changes. 
So as we get older, do we need more protein as we age or less protein as we age? More. Okay. And do you have some numbers that you like to go off of or is it very person dependent? Um, I work on lean lean mass like often i'll have people have dexas because it's available here pretty easily uh, a general general range that we try to stick with is low end for recovery days maybe 1.5 to 1.6 grams per kilo and then when we're on our active days especially with the high intensity stuff we're hitting that too sometimes 2.3 depending on what the training week is and I've seen in your post too, that you talk a lot about the importance of getting that in right after the workout. Can you explain that a little bit on why that's important and not to wait hours on hours and then have your protein shake before you go to bed? Why is it important for my listeners to do that right after they work out? Well, the whole idea of working out is to cause a stress. And if you're causing a stress and your body's already, you're in this peri and postmenopausal state and your body's already under a high amount of stress. When you add physical activity in, you're creating another amount of stress. Your body's like, I need to overcome this. And like I said, cortisol comes into play. You have a higher baseline level of cortisol. So if you're delaying food intake and you're delaying nutrition to help overcome this exercise stress that you've just encountered, it's like, why did you train? Because you're not going to get adaptations because your body stays in this breakdown state for a long period of time. So if you're doing resistance training and it's super hard, and you're like, oh, I'm not that hungry. And I have, you know, an hour and a half or so before lunch, I'll just wait. Then you're not going to get gains. Mm -hmm. It's like, why? Why did you do that workout? Because the other unfortunate thing is a lot of women will go into resistance training or short workout without eating either. So they're going in low with low fuel. And then they're already in a breakdown state. They do more breakdown activity and then they just elongate it. And we know that, as I said before in the other podcasts, is it creates a low energy availability response in the body. And when we have that in peri and postmenopause, the ability to change body composition becomes almost impossible. You really need to dial in that nutrition in and around training. And like I said, if you have a high protein diet, high being relative, you know, um, not the three or whatever grams or people typically say is high. Um, but relatively staying on top of your protein, then it's, it's easy to lose the body fat and maintain the mass. And that's what a lot of women are after because it's so incredibly difficult to build lean mass. You can build strength. You can get this, the neuromuscular strength, but to actually put on the tissue, so incredibly difficult when you don't have any kind of estrogen to help you do that. What I've noticed too is conversations with members at my gym is that they, women think they're eating a lot of protein and then maybe we'll draw it out or we'll look at their MyFitnessPal and it's just not a lot. It just seems to be a disconnect between, man, I, I really thought I was like, it seems like I am and they're just not. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, let's look. A lot of women will be okay at breakfast, right? They might have eggs, they might have some yogurt, they might have a protein shake, but as the day goes on, that protein intake just wanes. And we look at it as protein distribution, right? And it's like, make a focus of knowing what protein you're gonna have at every meal, and that will definitely help. But it might not be 
completely right, but it's definitely going to help instead of just being like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have some carrots and hummus. There's some protein in hummus. Right. Not really. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So uh, about a month or two ago, I put out a post for my uh, followers on social media. I said, hey, who would you want me to bring back for round two on the on the podcast? And your name came up the most. So I reached out, got in contact with you. And then I put out another post to my listeners said, all right, we got her. Now, what questions do you want to ask? And so I got about 15 questions here, pretty much all from women that are in that menopausal stage of life. Uh, I assume some of them are pretty um, generic. They might take some time. Some of them might be three words. That's okay. So we'll have some fun with it. These are directly from social media. Um, we'll kind of just take them one by one and, and see kind of what the people want to hear. Does that sound good? Perfect. It's like okay. quick rapid fire questioning. Yeah. And I'm sure some of them won't be. I'm sure some will be like, man, we could do a whole podcast on this question alone, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. So, so the first one, um, uh, yeah, very generic here is, is, is Dr. Stacey, how do I over, how do I overcome fatigue? I just feel tired all the time going while I'm going through menopause. Yeah, this is a big thing because we have the neuromuscular changes that are happening <clears throat> and we start to look at using adaptogens and Ashwagandha is one of the best adaptogens used for fatigue. Um, so for people who aren't aware of what adaptogens are, they are plant compounds, specific plant compounds. I think one of the most commonly known ones is ginseng. And there are different molecules in these plants that actually work with your hypothalamic um, axis, pituitary axis. Uh, so it, it kind of downgrades the effect of cortisol. It helps with neurotransmitter. Um, balancing and it really does help with the fatigue uh ashagon is really easy to get you can get it um from any supplement store online amazon it's only 300 milligrams a day and it it helps balance out all of the stress points that your body's going under that then starts to eliminate that fatigue another one that's very similar is rhodiola rhodiola rosea and it can be more of a stimulant, but not in a caffeine stimulant way. It just gives you more focus. Um, and so does Shashandra. So those are the three that we often try first ashagandha, um, especially for the deep fatigue and helping with sleep. Then we'll add in some rhodiola. And then the last one we'll add in is Shashandra. And that really tends, the big three tend to really overcome that fatigue. When you hear fatigue, does your mind also go to possibly just being undernourished? Could it be as simple as that? Sometimes the misstep between training and food intake because of the mindset around calories in, calories out. Um, so that can definitely come into play. And But often that's not the case. Even if they are eating lower than they should be, the fatigue is like this to the core dead end fatigue that sleep just won't get rid of. And that's more of the the imbalance between neurotransmitters and stress responses. Second one here. This was we could do the whole podcast on it. And you have courses on it, so this is a very generic one, but it's 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 a great question. What's the best diet, Stacey, to maintain or improve performance during menopause? This one's really easy. One, no tr trendy diets. Um, two, fueling for what you are doing and following up with protein like we've been discussing. And then looking more at the Mediterranean aspect of, of what to kind of traditional diet to follow, because we want to increase the amount of complex carbs from fruit and veg to improve our gut microbiome. Because we want a wide 
amount of diversity in the gut so that we can get the signaling to stay lean. We get more BDNF production for our brain and we have better immunity. So the basis of following a Mediterranean diet of you're having a lot of fresh fruit, veg, whole grains, plant-based fats, some seafood, maybe some lean meat from other sources um, and some dairy for protein as well. And that tends to be the best kind of diet to follow when you're in this transition phase. You started by saying no trendy diets. And I think you say that because you have one or two on the top of your mind, which, which one it goes to the top <clears> of your mind. Would you say that, <laughs> which one, two or three, are you like, one, two this, or this, three. this is what I mean when I say this. Yeah. So intermittent fasting, time restricted eating and, and ketogenic, because there's a huge push for the ketogenic diet in this transition population, perimenopause, postmenopause. Um, but excitingly, UC San Diego just put out a study results this week that really demonstrates the sex differences between these diets and why they do not work for women. And I was like, sweet, now we have some animal and some general population models to show that it's not just in the athletic population where it doesn't work, but in general, it doesn't work. Um, it causes a lot of epigenetic changes in women that encourages that visceral fat and the fatigue and lean mass loss. Um, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, a lot of times the, um, the fasting window comes at training times or around training times. And again, it comes down to what's your body going to use? It's going to use lean mass in both men and women. There was a study that came out in Nature about three months ago, looking at lean, normal weight men and women who followed time-restricted eating. Um, and they ended up with sarcopenia because their body was going through lean mass, trying to find energy to provide fuel for training in daily life because of these big times of no food coming in. Mm. So again, it comes back to what was the original population, the overweight, obese, unhealthy population, and that's where they work. Mm -hmm. And so... Do you say, so you say that for women, definitely. Is that also the same for men then too? Are you saying no keto, no intermittent fasting as well? Or are you, are you saying that one can kind of be better than the other? Well, the efficacy for keto in men is better. Like there is evidence that especially younger men can, can do well on the ketogenic diet, but intermittent fasting, if you are already lean, then it does more harm than good, especially mm -hmm in that athletic population, both men and women. And for women always, no, just stay away from it. Yeah, good. Um, let's see the next one. It seems like in prior years, it was easier to muster up a good workout on short sleep. However, nowadays, going through menopause, if I don't get adequate sleep, it's a much harder battle for me to get into the gym, let alone get a workout. Any advice on that? Yeah, sleep is a big thing because it's really interrupted, right? And so we know that doing specific sleep hygiene practices, one of the first things that we try to do is get women into more of a parasympathetic drive because we're in this peri, um, perimenopause, menopause transition, we tend to be locked in a sympathetic drive. So we have a really difficult time getting into parasympathetic and we need parasympathetic to sleep. So we look at doing 10 minutes before bed of like quiet room, little mindfulness breathing or focusing on one thing and just really trying to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, getting us out of that stress state. Because like I've said before, we already have increased amount of baseline cortisol. We need to do things to counter it. 
The other thing is drinking something cold before bed to really help bring core temperature down. If you are having interrupted sleep from night sweats, then we look at using some of the adaptogens that I mentioned um, because they counter that um, vasomotor symptomology. Um, and when we start getting into better sleep hygiene and activating that parasympathetic, then the quality of the sleep is much better. Sleep architecture is better, even if the time you are in bed is shorter. Because the whole idea about that parasympathetic activation is to increase the time in non-REM stage three, which is your, your slow wave sleep, as well as time latency into REM. So we want to get into REM quickly. We want to increase slow wave sleep. And instead of being in bed for you know seven or eight hours and not getting quality of sleep, you might be in bed for six hours and it's really sound sleep. Yeah. While you're transitioning into that sleep hygiene state and you're having that deadened fatigue and you can't get into the gym, don't be so hard on yourself. It can be something as simple as doing a couple of 20 second high intensity sprints, two minutes in between. You might do four to five sets of that call it because that high intensity is going to be so much more beneficial for your body than slogging it out of the gym in a moderate intensity with low motivation. So it doesn't have to be a lot, mm -hmm. just a small amount of that high intensity. I find it interesting that um, a good majority of the symptoms in menopause have to do with being at night or when you're sleeping, whether it's waking up a lot or sweats or hot flashes. Is there a reason why and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the, it's distributed throughout the day evenly, but it just seems like there's more at night. Is there a reason because of that? Or is there a reason for yep. that? Yeah. Um, estrogen is tightly tied to melatonin. And when it goes up, uh, melatonin production is kind of, well, I shouldn't say it's lagged, but it does have a little bit of a misstep. And we also know that when estrogen and progesterone both go up, you have a changeover in sleep architecture. When they both plummet, the body's like, hey, wait a second, what's going on, right? I need a little bit more help here. And then the vasomotor symptomology is also tied to estrogen because estrogen helps with um, temperature control. It also helps with uh, vasodilation and constriction. So when that drops off, um, you will have this sense of heat and the body's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? The hypothalamus is going a little bit crazy. And then boom, it causes a complete vasodilation and then a complete constriction because you've dumped too much heat. And it happens significantly at night because we have these temperature fluctuations while we're sleeping. We have to drop our temperature before we can actually fall asleep in a deep sleep. And then it starts to come up and then you'll have a little bit of up and down throughout the night. And then before you wake up, natural waking up is your core temperature starts to increase. So you're having these temperature fluctuations at night. The hypothalamus is overreactive to it. Mm. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Oh, shit, I'm too hot. So, boof, hot flash. Mm. Oh, my gosh, I've done too much heat. I'm really cold. So this is where we're looking at using those adaptogens. We're looking at using something cold before bed so we can drop our temperature to a lower starting point. So we stay yeah. out of that oscillation. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, there are you know significant amount of literature out there that supports the rhodiola and the ashwagandha to control this and to get rid of insomnia and to really help improve sleep architecture hmm. more so than traditional sleeping aids. Fascinating. Next question was menopause is typically the time that women start to gain more belly fat. What sort of explanation and advice do you have around that? So the visceral 
fat, the menopot, comes from the changeover estrogen progesterone. And when you start to have that drop off of both, there is a changeover in the signaling for the way your body stores fat. And it starts to put it into that deep abdominal fat around the tissues, especially your essential organs. Because estrogen and progesterone are responsible for metabolic shifts across the menstrual cycle. So you go from low hormone, being able to access carbohydrate well, into elevation of estrogen progesterone that spares carbohydrate, increases fatty acid use, and changes over blood sugar control. So when those drop, you are more um, insulin resistant and you get from that more signaling to store visceral fat and you don't have this changeover in metabolism to increase fatty acid use and then dial it down. So you end up with more visceral fat. The counter for that is plyometrics and, and sprint interval training. So the high jump training, we know that it again, it changes um, the receptors within the muscle to rely more on glute four activation. You also get a growth hormone response afterwards. So both of those help with insulin sensitivity and the sprint interval training helps mobilize free fatty acids because in the low recovery phase, your body's like, I need to hold on to that carbohydrate. So I'm going to use more fatty acids. So the combination of those two really attenuates that visceral fat gain. Does the belly fat, um, does that look different depending aesthetically look different depending on where you're at in the stage, who you are? Can, can anything aesthetically tell you if you're just looking at it? Is there anything you could pull out of that? Genetics does have a play in it, right? Okay. And if you have a tendency to put on more abdominal fat when you're premenopausal, you'll have a greater tendency to put it on post. And if you are someone who's an endurance junkie and you keep doing lots of endurance work and you ignore resistance training and jump training, then you have a higher predisposition for putting it on. Interesting. Uh, next question here. Number six, what is the ideal training schedule for women during the week? Workout days versus rest days. And then also should all workouts have a weight training component? So kind of a couple of things here. Well, first, what's, what's the ideal training schedule for women during the week going through menopause? Um, so we like to back it up by two hard days. So like Monday, Tuesday, hard days. So that high intensity work. Wednesday, really super, super polarized, easy, easy. Like you're embarrassed because you're being passed by the mall walkers when you're on your run. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wednesday, or, so that's Wednesday. Thursday is more of a moderate intensity. So you might think about doing um, hit, not sit work. Um, Friday is another low, low, embarrassing, slow um, work. Friday or Saturday and Sunday are two super high intensity days. So you end up with four high intensity days. If you think Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but you vary when you do your workouts. So on the weekend, you have the opportunity of going morning or night, right? So if you're thinking that Monday and Tuesday morning are the only times you have to work out, then you want to make sure that Sunday was Sunday morning so that you have that 24 hour recovery. If you can do Sunday morning, Monday morning, Tuesday night, then that gives you even a bigger buffer of recovery. Um, but what we're trying to do is do two week block, one week deload, two week block, one week deload. Um, so you're trying to get four high intensity sessions in one week. So however that plays out for you and you want three really significant high or not high intensity, heavy resistance training workouts. 
Um, you can back them up. A lot of times we'll back them up by doing a really short, focused, heavy resistance training workout, and then we'll transfer to doing some sit intervals on the rower, the assault bike. Sorry, motorcycle. All good. Uh, um, or on the treadmill for some of my endurance junkies who are like, oh, I, I'm training for an endurance run. Okay, well, we're going to take the posterior chain work that we just did, and we're going to do some sprint intervals on the treadmill. Might be 15 minutes tops. So you're getting that resistance, you're taking that fatigue from the resistance into running economy, and it works better than going for a 45 minute hour run, which really doesn't do much. Dr. Stacey, what, what, are, what are some symptoms or effects that you've seen from women that are trying to do the high intensity every single day? Oh, they get so tired that they end up in that moderate intensity. Like you have people who are like, I'm going to go, I'm going to do boot camp or CrossFit every day, right? Or I'm going to do this 12 hour or 12 o'clock class every day. And they end up in that gray zone. By the end of the week, they're so tired, they can't hit those high intensities. So instead of getting a really good growth hormone response after exercise and anti-inflammatory response after exercise, they get a big boost of cortisol. And again, that doesn't help with any of the gains that they're trying to make. Mm -hmm. So you do need to factor in that recovery. The most that we want to see if you aren't polarizing or planning your high intensity of morning, night, morning, night type thing, like two mornings and then a night. Like we were talking about then the most you want to see your two high intensity days together and then a really polarizingly slow day in between mm-hmm. very cool so would you say if somebody if somebody asked you would you rather me come to the gym twice a week hit really high intensities or would you rather have me come to the week come to gyms uh five or six times a week but they're very just moderate in that kind of that gray area if you had to pick which one would you rather see which one would you pick Two, of course, two days of high intensity, because the goal of high intensity is actually be able to do the high intensity properly. So many women don't know what that feels like, right? Because they're always stuck in this moderate intensity. You go to a spin class, that's not high intensity, that's moderate intensity, unless you're doing specific type FTTP work where you're doing 30 seconds full gas and then two minutes super, super slow, but no spin class does that. But people walk out of it thinking they've done a high intensity session. Mm-hmm. No, you've sweat a lot and you never really got up into that full gas zone. Yep. So the high intensity has to be high intensity. Like if we go rating perceived exertion, your um, intervals of high intensity, you're sitting around that nine or 10 and the recovery, you're sitting down at that three. So really, really polarizing it. And when you learn how to do that, you really don't want to go more than twice. <laughs> yeah. Amen. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go to the next year. Number seven. Are there any exercises that we can do in the gym to help strengthen our pelvic floor after childbirth? Yeah. So these are things where a lot of people are like, what, what do I do? Um, so every time you are doing bench press, deadlift, squat, you are engaging that pelvic floor. You're thinking about pulling up. And as soon as you feel any pressure, then you stop that movement. We also know that warming up by doing child's pose and belly breathing really will start to activate that pelvic floor. So you can feel the the feeling of pulling up and dropping and pulling up and dropping. So if we're warming up doing those kinds of exercises and then being very conscious when we are lifting, um, that really does benefit and help strengthen that pelvic floor. If you're still having significant issues, then working with a pelvic floor specialist to give you specific exercises for you is highly recommended. Cool. 
Number eight is, is there any way to make the transition easier from a nutrition and workout perspective? Are there any preventative measures we can take as we enter pure menopause? We talked about it a little bit, so I don't mean to keep bringing up the same questions, but what are your thoughts? Um, Yeah. So getting out of that mentality of volume and calories in calories out. So we have to look at it as um, how many minutes of high intensity you do in a week, right? So if you're typically going on a 40 minute run, try to find a route that has lots of hills and how hard can you go up that hill? And it might not be 40 minutes. It might be 35, might be 30 minutes. That doesn't matter. Don't think about the time. Don't think about the distance. You want to think about how hard can you go at certain points in that run? Or if you're in the gym as well, you want to think about uh, maybe you're doing an AMRAP. How hard can you go when you're supposed to be on? And switching around from time and distance into minutes of intensity is a huge mind shift. But this is the best way to think about it. And it's also very time efficient. Mm -hmm. You also have to think about if I'm lifting heavy, what is my form? And we want people to think about lifting heavy, not doing that eight or more reps, right? We want to really get down into your 85% one rep max. Um, So that's the type of training you should be thinking about. If you are an endurance junkie, then yeah, feed your soul every other weekend, every 10 days, go for your long, slow ride or run or whatever, but make sure you're fueling well for it, recovering from it. And then when we talk about a nutrition standpoint, like I've been saying, you want to fuel for each session you're doing and recover from it, even protein distribution throughout the day and a wide variety of fruit and veg for gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. And those changes tend to be the big rocks and it helps get women out of low energy availability. You start to see improvement quickly with high intensity and resistance training. And it gives you more time, which is lacking, especially in this time period with careers and everything else. Um, yeah, that would be the big things that I would say. Love it. Uh, next one is sleep. How does one sleep during menopause? I've heard horror stories about waking up a million times throughout the night. We kind of touched on this already uh, with your sleep hygiene and some of the things that we can do before bed. Is there anything else that kind of that you would shout out to the person that is uh, worried about it? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Because if you worry about it, then it'll happen. <laughs> As soon as you lie down and you're like, I can't sleep. Then you're like, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. You start, think, you start thinking about thinking about how you can't sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, number 10 out of 15 here. So um, for, let's see, for losing and or maintaining healthy weight during perimenopause and menopause, is it better to have more cardio days or more weight training days in your exercise program? I think if, if, you're, if you're saying one or the other, we're leaning more towards weight training, aren't we? Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Next one. Um, is there anything, may it be nutrition or exercise that reduces symptoms during your cycle or regardless of what you do, will everyone's journey be different and unpredictable? And then she put in quotes, bloating. Uh, so what you, what I suggest women in their early to mid forties start doing is tracking their menstrual cycle. So you start seeing what your own lived experience is. And when you start having changes from that, you'll know what those symptoms are. So say you're starting to have a lot of bloating, then it can be the fact that you need more omega threes and, and you might need to look at using aspirin, not during a bleed phase, but during the bloating phases, because that really helps counter prostaglandin, um, prostaglandins that are produced by estrogen. Um, 
each woman's experience is going to be a little bit different. You can look to what your mom went through because mm-hmm. there is a good genetic link. So you'll know around about what age you might hit menopause. You can see if your mom had lots of severe vasomotor symptoms and you have a similar body shape, then you might as well. But being prepared and understanding it. So you're looking and tracking to see if there are any changes. You're looking from a genetic standpoint. But the biggest thing is I don't want people to be afraid. Like there's so much tabooness around it. And they hear horror stories of not sleeping and putting on a whole bunch of weight, becoming slow, brain fog. Those are typical people who don't do any kind of intervention. But there are tools changing your training, changing your nutrition, looking to use adaptogens, having conversations with your physician to see, well, maybe do I need to go on an IUD for a little bit of help? Or maybe I need to transition from um, an oral contraceptive pill onto nothing to see if I am with the symptomology. And then maybe I have to use some menopause hormone therapy, but keep the conversation going. Because if you, you don't bring it up, they won't bring it up. Um, let's see. Next one. Interesting question here. Is there any evidence that shows saving your placenta encapsulation until menopause being beneficial for symptoms? Absolutely no. No, nope, no evidence whatsoever. Interesting. You want to talk about it? Or no? Oh, so the part of the trend and part of it also started with Gwyneth Paltrow and group was saving your placenta and freezing it and or eating it soon after childbirth or saving it until menopause. Because the thought process is the placenta is very vascular. It's very healthy. It has lots of stem cells, lots of um, estrogen and progesterone receptors because that's all part of the development. So then if you save it, then you're getting the stem cell hit which would help counter some of the ovarian failure but there is no evidence to support that interesting um let's see next one here a recommendation number 13 a recommendation for a trustworthy brand of valerian root capsules or any supplements really since the supplement industry is often not fda evaluated also thoughts on collagen and or creatine for this specific population Oh, I love this question. Yes. <laughs> you can look up valerian root. Um, you can go to the NIH website and look at complementary alternative medicine. They have a library that goes to, uh, I guess, validated and or clean supplements. Um, and so that's one place to start looking instead of going through marketing. If we talk about collagen and creatine. I wish every woman would get on creatine start taking you know that two to five gram daily dose that i think i talked about that last time we were yeah, talking yep. yeah yeah low dose of creatine uh, because women have 70 percent less than men and just that low dose helps with everything it doesn't put on the weight gain it helps with brain health it helps with gi it helps with neurotransmitters it helps with everything so creatine definitely just that low dose collagen is an interesting one because it depends on what you want to use it for and what kinds of you're using so if you're having osteoarthritis issues and cartilage and inflammation issues you want to look at using a native type 2 and a peptide type 2 because the native doesn't get absorbed but it causes a immune response that actually goes to the site of the inflammation and the degeneration and stops it well attenuates the demise And when you take the peptides, the peptides are absorbed and they're target tissue. And so they go and help with the cartilage to attenuate the the degradation of it. 
So there's really good research out there for collagen mixing native and, and peptides for osteoarthritis. If we're looking for hair and skin, then again, it's peptides and you want to do type ones and threes. And there is good efficacy for that as well. And we know that collagen production starts dropping in both sexes at around the age of 30. And when you hit the menopause transition, because there's a rapid loss of lean mass as well, and a signaling for reduction in um, collagen turnover, so you end up with more soft tissue injuries, it can be beneficial if you're someone who's starting to suffer from um, ligament and tendon injuries and some soft other like muscular type injuries as well. Sure. I think that part, that, that's kind of what this next question was. It, it said, um, what's the best advice to continue to feel strong and powerful when sometimes muscle mass is harder to gain and bone, bone density becomes a challenge? Is that kind of the same thing that you're saying here? Uh, no, different even. Okay. Well, Great. definitely used, you can think about collagen, creatine for sure. So creatine is going to help you to, in the gym to be able to lift more because you're going to have more available um, fuel for the fast energetics, especially for lifting and brain health. And it does help with, with the lean, maintaining the lean mass just because you're able to do more from a stimulus standpoint. Again, following up with protein. But for bone density, we have to look at multidimensional stress. So jump training. This is another reason why plyometrics are, are often recommended. So if you're looking at 10 minutes, three times a week of jump training, not only you're benefiting your bones, but you're also benefiting that fast explosiveness and the neuromuscular connection that we lose um, as we age. It's good for both men and women, but because we have this definitive point for women when we start to lose bone mass at a rapid rate, really important to put in the jump training. Running doesn't work. Resistance training kind of, but not really. You need to do that multi-directional type jump training. Almost done. I got a couple more. Number 14. Um, what vitamins are recommended for active women over 50? And why do I crave sugar so much? I'm kidding, but I'm also serious. <laughs> <laughs> um, there isn't a blanket recommendation for vitamins. If you're eating uh, a wide variety of fruit and veg and you're pretty covered, mm -hmm. if you're deficient in something, you get blood tests for sure to find out. The only caveat there is vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D is important, particularly in the perimenopausal aspect. Because we have such high inflammation, we also are predisposed to becoming anemic. So when you have high inflammation, you have an upregulation of hepcidin. Hepcidin is the enzyme that inhibits your body absorbing iron. It's countered by vitamin D. So if you're having issues with um, low hemoglobin or that borderline low iron storage and you're having a hard time getting on top of it, you need to start implementing vitamin D. Vitamin D3 after training tends to be the best way to get on top of that. It downregulates inflammation, downregulates hepcidin, helps you get on top of the iron absorption. Craving sugar, that's because you're having this fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone. You're having issues with neurotransmitters. Your brain is tired. And when your brain is tired, it's like, I need some fuel. And it always goes, where's my blood glucose? Mm -hmm. So we can counter that craving again with creatine and protein. Because the more creatine you have, the more, um, you know, the, the brain is very, very energetic. And it's very hungry for so much and creatine tends to to hit that mark and so when you're taking care of brain tissue and then you have protein that helps with appetite hormones and satiation it tends to downgrade that craving for sugar awesome. 
Um, number 15, and we talked about this a little bit, maybe you have something more specific, but it says, I'm curious to learn more about how to lessen the hot flashes that I'm receiving at night. And we talked about the, the, co- the cold drink of water beforehand, parasympathetic state, anything specific for hot flashes on top of what we already talked about, of course. Uh, no, nothing else really. It's, um, you really want to be able to drop that core temperature and keep it below that oscillation. Um, and again, using the adaptogens, doing the parasympathetic, doing something cold before bed, you can dump some heat by putting your feet in cold water before you go to bed so that you are colder, um, and keeping your room cool as well. So all the good sleep hygiene things also help with keeping temperature control from an internal standpoint which reduces the hot flashes at night. Cool. Second to last one here, Nutri- any nutritional or training advice for the postmenopausal women? Is there anything that needs to be said that's different after that and, and that time of your life than it is kind of when you're in the, in the meat of it, if you will? Start in your start implementing everything before you hit postmenopause. But if you haven't, then start now. So it's still the polarized training. It is the protein heavy. It is making sure you're doing high intensity and resistance training, um, getting more carbohydrate from fruit and veg, supplementing with creatine. Um, so all the things that we've talked about for the perimenopausal state, this is what you want to do in the postmenopausal. Yep. Cool. Last thing I wanted to ask, this wasn't one of the questions, but I'm curious, why do women pee during double unders one? And then how can we as sorry, waiting for the motorcycle? How can, yeah, <laughs> how, can yeah. we, how can we as coaches help with this? Can we help? Can, 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 is there something that we can do? It's just, I'm, I'm in the CrossFit world and I see it at live competitions. I see it at my gym and I'm like, man, there's gotta be a way who can I talk to about this? You're the best person to talk to. So can you enlighten us a little bit about this? Yeah. So a uh, pelvic floor is a muscle. When you yeah. start getting into older age, um, you start losing that neuromuscular control. You start getting a, a weaker muscle. So it's about doing pelvic floor strengthening. Okay. So it is all about, like I was talking before, like you're engaging before you're lifting. Um, you can do some warm up exercises and before double unders definitely need to engage. And that's one of the things you have to think about while you are jumping, because a lot of women are just thinking about fasterous, 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 but you have to think about how straight are you? Are you pulling up? Are you over your hips? Because all of that helps to get that pelvic or under control to get it tight so that you don't have leakage when you're jumping. Mm-hmm. Very cool. This was fun. A lot of questions. I have three pages of notes here, Dr. Stacy. So I awesome. really, I appreciate it. You're just, you're a brilliant individual. You do such a good job answering the questions. So if we're going to just kind of wrap this thing up for people, it's not just athletes, it's, it's general fitness enthusiasts, anybody that likes to work out and they want to have a successful 40 to 60 years of age, what kind of one last remarks would you leave for them as we kind of close this thing down? Uh, don't be afraid of aging because, you know, so many women are, um, and in that you have the tools, you know what to do now. Right. And if I were to say one thing, and I I've said this many times this week to so many people lift heavy, (laughs) it's the best, best thing you can do across the board. Like if you have to choose one thing, you want to lift heavy and maybe follow it up with some box jumps. Very cool. I like it a lot. Uh, Dr. Stacey, if I want to point my listeners to you, uh, the course, if they want to learn more, what are some things that you're getting into right now that uh, we can share with them? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> now, 
The courses, yeah, we have uh, a new library of, of micro learning courses. So small doses that are mm, about an hour long. We get into like collagen and creatine and menstrual cycle tracking and menopause and that kind of stuff. So good library to dig in there. Our book launch for our next book is in May, but pre-order is available. It's called Next Level. So it talks oh, all about- congratulations. Thanks. Awesome. It talks all about this. It's a book written for this entire population of peri and postmenopausal women. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are the big things. And we have other courses coming down the track. Uh, the next big one we're doing is on um, youth and youth development. So oh, cool. we've we've hit the middle yep. group. We've hit yep. the later group. And now we're looking at the young girls in transition there. Oh, so, yeah. so cool. How How is the new book different than Roar? Um, so when we put Roar out, I had a so many questions about menopause because okay. we only had one chapter, right? Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of like the drive to do the course while we were writing the book. Um, and I think the impetus for the book to actually get written was my co-author started going through all these things and she's like, I don't know what to do. I can't write this book. And she emailed me and I'm like, this is what you do. And she implemented it and she's like, oh my gosh, everyone needs to know this. Nice. Um, and then COVID delayed it a little bit, but <laughs> This book is specifically talking about history of menopause, hormonal contracept or um, hormonal therapy or not. What are your alternatives? What kind of training to do? Uh, what kind of nutrition to do? What about pelvic floor health? What kind of mobility work? How to structure training? Um, so really in depth, probably about all the questions you asked really in depth and all of that. Very cool. And when and where can we get that? Right now, you can pre-order on Penguin Random House or Amazon. Um, if you're outside of the States, then things like um, Wickles and Book Depository. And it gets shipped on the 5th of May. May. Perfect. Exciting. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for taking the time again. Round two is even better. Round one was amazing. Round two is even better. I love it. I think their uh, listeners are going to really enjoy it. Take a lot of this out. Guys, if you do, uh, make sure to post this on your Instagram. Tell us what you got out of it. And if you start implementing some of this stuff, I'd love to hear how it's impacted your life as I was, I was assuming uh, Stacey Sims would as well. So thank you guys for taking the time to tune in. Thank you, Dr. Stacey, for being a part of this again. We'll see you guys next week for another edition of the My Fit Podcast. Have a great week.